Hello, everyone. Welcome to Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist for Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. Uh, we welcome you to join us uh, on Twitter, uh, at Disrupt TV Show. Please send Ray and myself and our distinguished guests your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong, best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business. He's a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, Forbes, ZDNet. And he's also the co-founder and CEO of Constellation Research. One of my favorite follows on Twitter as well, at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. And I'm excited here to be with my co-host, Vala Afshar. He's the Chief Digital Evangelist for Salesforce and also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence, in case you haven't read that book, and on one of the top influencers for CIOs and CMOs and digital folks across the world. All right, who do we have today? Happy Friday and happy Memorial Day. This is going to be an amazing show. Uh, we have Jeff Gothel, author of Sense and Response, How Successful Organizations Listen to Customers and create new products as our first guest. Jeff is a lean thinking and design evangelist, spreading the gospel of great team collaboration, product innovation, and evidence-based decision-making. He's an author, he's a speaker, he's a thought leader on the future of product development and design, often teaching workshops or giving talks, building cultures that support teamwork and innovation around the world. In fact, I believe he's dialing in from Spain right now. You can follow Jeff on Twitter at J-B-O-O-G-I-E. Welcome, Jeff, to Disrupt TV. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Hey, we're excited to have you. And you know, you're in Barcelona. What's going on in Barcelona? Um, work trip? Pleasure? Great way to spend Memorial Day weekend? Uh, I mean, yeah, a little bit of all that. Um, you know, there's always a little bit of pleasure in Barcelona. I got a little bit of work here next week as well. A good way to spend Memorial Day weekend. And I am uh, in, the, in the process of uh, ultimately relocating here. I'm actually going to start living here uh, full-time uh, relatively soon. And so this is a thing that's been in motion for a long time. And uh, we're kind of finalizing some things over the next week or so. Wow, congratulations. So Sense and Respond has come out. And what, what is this all about? What are people missing here? And what's kind of the gist behind Sense and Respond? Sense and Respond was written as a reaction to the first book that I wrote with my co-author, Josh Seiden. Josh and I wrote a book called Lean UX. And uh, we're designers by trade. And the book that we wrote, Lean UX, was really a, a manifesto for designers by designers to help them rethink how product design takes place in an increasingly agile world. Now, in the four and a half years or so since Lean UX has been out, it's done tremendously well, and uh, it's sparked you know, a global movement. And we've, we've, we've been lucky enough to travel the world um, and teach workshops and meet with folks, do some consulting work, and, and get a, a variety of feedback. And the feedback was always the same from the teams trying to do the work that we talked about in Lean UX, and it was this. It said, we love to work this way. We want to work with our colleagues in engineering and in product management and leadership, and we want to collaborate, and we want to be close to the customer. My company doesn't work this way. My boss doesn't let me work this way. And so that was really good feedback for us to say, look, there's, there's a conversation to be had here with the leaders of organizations to talk about um, how to create the kind of environments and the cultures that support cross-functional collaboration, customer centricity, and evidence-based decision-making. So we wrote Sense and Respond. And, and Sense and Respond really has two theses in it. The, the book has two parts to it. The first half of the book makes a, what I believe is a compelling case that no matter what business you're in, if you seek to scale or to compete in the 21st century, you're in the software business first. Hmm. And we, we, we've got case studies and examples from pretty much every domain, government and retail and agriculture and financial services, so that you'd, you'd have to make a pretty strong case to say, hey, we're not in the software business first. And then the second half of the book says, okay, if you buy that you're in the software business first, managing a software-based business is different. You can't manage it like a traditional manufacturing operation or a traditional bank or an insurance company. And here's how it's different for all of the disciplines that are involved in that, not just product development, but legal and finance and HR and so forth. And so that's what the book is about. It's a, it's a synthesis of a lot of modern thinking about uh, modern management, product development, user centricity in a, in a case for uh, executives and leaders to, to digest about um, how to kind of rethink the way they approach leading their companies. That's great, Jeff. My sense is Lean UX was focused on a technologist and practitioners, and that sense and response 
is has has looked and, and I think it was 2012. So in the last you know few years, the rhythm of technology has impacted the rhythm of business. And you're talking about software. If every company is going to be a software company, uh, something that Andreessen, uh, Mark Andreessen said a decade ago. And then uh, just this week, Battery Ventures had this entire presentation talking about every company is going to be a software company. Um, so is this book aimed at Atlanta business leaders so that they can think about how do you adjust your workflow, talent, culture, go to market, uh, thinking like a digital native, companies that are born in the cloud, mobile, social, and are really software, uh, software driven? Yep, exactly right. So those digitally native companies, they get how to leverage technology to create uh, products, you know, systems, comp comp complex systems that react to customer feedback uh, in as close to real time as possible. And you see that obviously with the Facebooks of the world and, and, and so forth. Um, but the, the more legacy businesses, the banks, the, uh, the insurance companies, the media companies, they have integrated technology into, into perhaps service delivery but they really haven't thought through how that affects um, the environment in which their employees work and the ability, the newfound ability. I mean, the, the title of the book is Sense and Respond for a very specific reason. It's be, if you buy the fact that you're a software-driven business, you have an un, uh, unparalleled capability all of a sudden to sense how what you're delivering is impacting your customers in real time. And you now have the systems, or you should be investing in the infrastructure and the systems, to then respond to that learning in real time as well, so that these, these digital uh, ecosystems are continuously evolving. No, and, that, and that's a really good point, because one of the things that you keep pushing in the book is really that need for continuously, continuously learning, continuously getting that feedback to change design. And, when, and, and I think you're at the crux of really talking about how people can transform themselves into that service design experience. So tell us a little bit more about that service design experience and what organizations need to do to take that customer behavior and use those signals to transform the new set of experiences. Right. Every channel that you reach out to your customers on is part of that service. And there is a customer journey that your customers follow from, from the beginning to the end of their life cycle with you. Traditionally, every chunk of that experience is sliced off into a silo that someone else is responsible for. What we have to do is start to look at that, at that customer journey holistically. And the nice thing is, is, that, is that because everything at least has some element of technology in it, or, or the, at least the ability to build in some kind of analytics or measurement into it, we can get a clear sense of how each channel and each transition between channel is impacting customers. Right? What are the outcomes that we're generating? And then how do we optimize for the customer's best interest, regardless of which channel came first, second, third, or fifth? But what's really fun is like in your first book, you showed us how to do it once. In this book, you're doing something about helping us learn all the time. And that's probably the most interesting feature of this. Tell us about that continuous learning and learning all the time aspect that people forget because people think, hey, it's once a project, I'm done, hey. But, but we don't live in that world, right? It keeps moving, so. Right, so the nature of software has changed. I mean, more so in the last five years than, than before, but certainly in the last 10 years, software has become continuous. I started my career at AOL. And you know we shipped CDs to people, and that was uh, about as as continuous as it got. You know, six months to make something, and then we'd print 15 million copies and hope it was really good, and then wait, and you'd wait for people to to install it, and use it, and maybe get some feedback, and then you know that feedback loop from the time that we shipped to the time that we shipped again was anywhere between six to 12 months. They make great coffee coasters. I've got I've got tons of them. <laughs> I can imagine, and I'm sorry about that. That's <laughs> quite okay. I just moved, and I, I literally was clearing out these things. My son was like, "What are these?" I'm like, "They're AOL coffee coasters." <laughs> but today, I mean, you you look at a company like Amazon, for example, right? Always kind of the poster child for for continuous everything. But look, they put real uh, they push code to production every 11.6 seconds, real bits to real customers, right? That's not staging, that's not, you know, that, that is new, new code, new ideas to real people somewhere in the world five times a minute. That's insane, right? And that, that means that their, eco, their digital ecosystem is continuously evolving. Everything they're putting out there is having some kind of impact on customers. And those changes in customers be, customer behaviors, those outcomes are measurable. And then they are actually set up to read that insight and react to it continuously. So there's always this loop. Like it's, it's interesting, right? If you if you think about kind of the way we built products back in the in the AOL days, right? It was very linear. Yeah. Right? And all the models 
for, uh, for project and product development. Since then, I've kind of felt very linear, but lately with the kind of the, the, the continuous nature of technology, you're seeing all these models now being circular. Right. Well, because, waterfall was great. I mean, it allowed you to go to conferences, it allowed you to like attend <laughs> meetings, have a side job. I mean, this agile thing, you guys have destroyed my life. I'm just oh, yeah. <laughs> Who wants daily scrums? Get out of here. I mean, right. We've gone from weekly to daily to three times a day on a scrum. I mean, this is crazy. I was, I, I, I was, I was talking to head of research for Capgemini yesterday, and he talked about the gap that exists between leadership and and, and, and individual contributors or even middle management as companies are going through the digital transformation journey. You talk about managing to outcomes versus output or features. Why is there a gap between ability to sense and respond and be adaptive when you look at, for example, you know, senior management versus the folks that are actually doing the work and closest to the customer? Yeah, this, this is, to me, this is the key thing around which everything that, everything that I certainly talk about and teach hinges. Shifting, shifting the leadership's perspective from managing the output, which is features, it's making stuff, to managing the outcomes, which is the changes in customer behavior that affect our business. Now, the reason why most companies manage the output is because it's binary. Yeah. Right? You either shipped or you didn't ship. Right. That's it. But because it's binary, it's easy to measure. It's easy to measure, it's easy to manage, and it has that kind of familiar manufacturing industrial era kind of ring to it, right? Well, how, many, how much stuff did you make? Like, it's, you know, as if we were, you know, pumping out, uh, you know, pens or Sharpies, right? How many features did you make this year? Well, we made 50. Was that good? Well, is it bad? I, don't, I mean, last year we made 42, right? So, so this is, and, and, but we don't talk about the impact that those features have on customers. Now, when you switch to outcomes, for example, um, we talk about something like retention. Right? Retention rate is a change in customer behavior. And you can, you can give a change in retention to your teams as a goal to hit. Now, the problem is that, first of all, what you're doing is you're, you're actually opening up a whole world of creativity for your teams. For example, you're saying, look, I want you to increase retention by 25%. Go figure it out, okay? Now, the teams get to pick what ideas, what combination of code and copy and design will actually change retention rates for the better. And they'll experiment and they'll find their way to there. Now, the, the trick here is that you don't know what they're going to ship. And you don't know what they're going to build as a manager. And managers get really scared when they don't have a roadmap, right? And you know, if somebody comes and asks them, hey, what's the team doing? And you know, mm, that's, not, that's not a good answer, right? And so uh, that, that's, that's really one of the biggest challenges here. And there's one other one. The, the other huge challenge here is that it gets really murky. So if I, if I task a team with a 25% increase in retention, and they come back after three months and they say, we increased retention by 16%. Is that good? Is that bad? Did they fail? Did they win? Right? It, becomes, it becomes less clear. And that, again, is, is not a comfortable place for a lot of managers. It is. It's up there with, hey, did we document enough? <laughs> right. Classic, classic scrum issues here. Right. It's a Ken Schwaber problem. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'll throw it at him. Okay, I hope his ears aren't burning. So, so you know, so this is really cool. I mean, you're, you, you came at it from the IT side, like Bob has said before. You're now coming at the business side. There's a cultural aspect here that managers have to change. I think there's a leadership aspect here. What are the core leadership qualities that you need to drive this customer-centric sense and respond culture? What, what, what's, what qualities are people missing to get there? Uh, the number one quality that makes this successful from a top-down perspective is humility. Um, in short supply and leadership. Um, but, <laughs> but, but it's, it's at, look, humility doesn't, but, but to be clear, humility doesn't mean I have no idea what to do. You guys go figure it out. Humility, uh, my favorite way to express humility is this, strong opinions loosely held. So I have a ton of experience. I'm good at my job. I have a strong opinion about how to solve this business problem. However, in the face of evidence, I am willing to change my mind and I'm willing to do so publicly. And when leaders do that, it opens up a conversation in, throughout the culture of the organization that says, I might be wrong, and that's okay. Let's go find out. And, and, and that's the key, because that continuous software builds continuous learning. But the only way that you're going to do anything with that continuous learning is if you're allowed to, if you feel like it's a safe place for you to say, you know what, I thought it was going to be blue. It actually should be red. 
And here's why, here's what we've learned, here's why we're changing our, our direction on that. If it's not safe to have that conversation, no one's gonna have it. So top-down leadership, being humble, when, when they're proven to be wrong, is key to this taking, taking shape. I think that's great advice. Uh, Benioff in his book wrote that adopting a beginner's mindset is key to agility, you know, being open, free of prejudice, hungry, curious. Uh, is there a silver bullet for organizational agility, knowing that today in this hyper-connected knowledge sharing economy, really speed is the new currency and you do have to be nimble and you have to be able to pivot when it makes sense to do so. So how do you coach your clients or how do you, what, what steps do they need to take to, you know, develop that agility muscle within their organization, especially digital immigrant companies that are not born, you know, mobile, social, data-driven and in the cloud? Yeah. Um, what I push them towards is really uh, taking as, as deep a dive as they're willing to into the customer-centric point of view of things. Uh, most of those traditional companies, kind of the legacy companies that are not digitally native, their point of view has always been business-centric. We're going to make these products and push them onto the market and people will buy them as they always have. And unfortunately, the power, the power uh, you know, has shifted to, to the consumer. And so getting those folks in touch with their customers, getting them to understand what pain points they're trying to solve, how they're currently solving them, what the competition is doing that maybe you're not, and, and what are the kinds of behaviors that we're looking for in our customers that would indicate that they love the products that we're shipping and that they'll continue to buy from us and tell their friends and so forth. And, and, you know, and again, B2C, B2B, it's, it's, it's all humans. So, it's, so the conversation is still the same, really getting into that customer's head and that customer's mindset. It's, it's, it's so absent in legacy organizations. That's where it starts because as soon as, soon as you, you know, it, the most powerful activities I've ever done and continue to do is getting executives in front of users of their products. As soon as they see people actually struggling with this in real life or not understanding the value of the thing that they're shipping, that's when things start to really evolve and, and change for the better. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Now, we're basically talking about the need to actually sense and respond, rebuild innovation, take that customer centricity, incorporate that empathy back into service design. Um, we talked a little bit about leadership. Who's doing this well? Which companies have figured this out, cracked the code? Hmm. Uh, so it, it's interesting to see. So one company that comes to mind immediately that's doing this really well is CarMax. CarMax? Car, CarMax, yep. CarMax, the, the used car huge retailer based in Virginia, has stores kind of across uh, the, the Mid-Atlantic. Um, they, they go as far north as Connecticut. Um, they are a fascinating organization that deals with, with brick and mortar stores and with a, a significant digital channel as well. The digital channel is lead gen. It's 100% lead gen uh, because they can't sell the cars online. And so they want people coming to the stores as prepared as possible, as qualified as possible, ready to buy, knowing what they can afford, really knowing what they want, and, and making the salesperson's life that much easier. Everybody wins in that particular scenario. And so everything that they do is designed to learn from the stores, to learn from the digital channel, to learn from the handoffs. They, they build these learning loops, and they, have, they actually have a test store in Richmond, Virginia, where they, they'll actually kind of hang out and learn from that. But they go to other stores as well, and they will uh, run experiments where they'll print out some, some data that they think a salesperson needs to be more successful. And then the salesperson will come back and say, this didn't really work for me, and here's why. And they'll optimize that information. And the same goes for their, for their buyers as well, because they want their buyers to be successful. Right. If, you, if you have a Honda Accord budget, right, you're going to come to the lot, you're going to see that Corvette in the corner, you're going to say, like, wow, I want that Corvette. But we don't want to waste your time on that Corvette <laughs> or the salesperson's time right, because you're in the Honda Accord ballpark. Right? Oh. And so they've got a tremendous uh, continuous learning loop across their brick and mortar, their digital channels, and their whole service in there. Wow. If you're wondering what happened to Circuit City, that is now CarMax. Thank you, Richard Sharp. Um, we are talking to Jeff Cottle, author of Sense and Respond. We're all software companies, and software companies run Agile today. And in order to run Agile, we need a Sense and Respond culture to match our software agility. Thanks a lot for being on the show. You can follow Jeff at JBoogie. That's and, right. Uh, definitely catch him up. And he's going to be in Barcelona. So thank you so much. Jeff, you thank you very much. All right. Thanks, guys. Consider coming back. You were terrific. I'd love to. Yeah, yeah. Maybe get you out to speak with us. So take care. Okay. Thank you. Very, very cool. Wow. We are moving in light speed. We're moving. Let's sense and respond. That is amazing.
That so. was awesome. I really enjoyed that. He was terrific. Um, amazing uh, uh, second guest on, on Disrupt TV. Talk, we're going to continue the conversation on innovation. He's one of the foremost uh, thought leaders in the world on this topic. Braden Kelly, innovation, change, and digital marketing strategy at Business Strategy Innovation. He's an experienced innovation speaker, trainer, and digital transformation specialist. I'm really looking forward to learning from Braden in the next 20 minutes. He's the author of Chartering Change and of Stoking Your Innovation Bonfire, and the creator of Change Planning Toolkit and InnovationExcellence.com co-founder. Braden has been advising companies on how to increase their revenue and reduce their costs for since 1996, I, I know. I know when you look at him, you can't believe that. But uh, <laughs> well, thank you. For more than two decades, he writes and speaks frequently on the topic of continuous innovation. I believe he's written over 400 articles on this topic in terms of innovation, and um, obviously an early adopter to Twitter because his handle, what an awesome <laughs> handle, is at innovate. So he must have been like number three after Jack. Uh, but uh, welcome, Braden, to Disrupt TV. <laughs> Thank you, Paula. Thank you, Ray. Great to We're be here. here. <laughs> Welcome. Where are you calling from? And we are so jealous of your Twitter handle, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am calling from Seattle, and I had the the fortunate opportunity to meet at Pistachio early on in the days of Twitter, and so I grabbed that that handle. I had no idea what I was going to do with it, but sat on it for a year or two, and then uh, understood what how I could add value to the community and started contributing. Good old Laura. We have to thank her. Laura's everywhere. <laughs> so, hey, so we talk a lot about innovation these days, and everyone's like, this is innovation. We're doing innovation. And what's really innovation today? Because it feels like it's overused. And what, what, how do you discern real innovation? Well, innovation definitely is an overused term and has become a confusing term. And uh, I see creativity, invention, and innovation as three very separate things. Things uh, creativity creates interesting things, invention creates useful things, and innovation creates valuable things. And so um, that's that's how you can discern whether something's creative, inventive, or innovative. And so if you look at something like the the iPod, you know the iPod was an innovation because it moved us from carrying around a single song or a single album with us to being able to carry around our entire music collection with us and to navigate that both on our computer and on the device itself very seamlessly and easily. And so it takes a lot of hard work and it involves typically a lot of different parts of the organization if you're going to create innovation, uh, a true innovation. But there are you know, different gradients of innovation, everything from a process innovation to a, um, you know, a service innovation, product innovation. You know, there's all kinds of different innovations, but the key is that it has to create enough value to displace the existing solution, even if so it's we, the do-nothing solution. We can poo-poo things now, like, well, it's like, oh, that's just creative. That's not innovative. <laughs> I can't <laughs> wait to do this terrible? on Twitter. This is going to be fun. I'm going to be on Twitter. Oh, that's just creative. I'm so sorry. That's not innovative. There's no value. <laughs> the amount of creativity and, and inventions and innovation, that velocity today is unprecedented. So I'm worried about poo-pooing anything because... Uh, that you know that person could be a multi multi-billionaire in short order but um uh, but you know <laughs> let, let, let's talk about you know 10 years ago Braden, if you looked at the top six companies in terms of value market cap there was only one technology company today five of the top six most valuable companies are software companies you know uh apple alphabet microsoft amazon facebook so it appears that you know the, the thesis of every company is a software company data is the new oil uh, there's a lot of uh, truth to that in that there, there's an incredible opportunity to not only innovate in, in terms of products and services, but innovate whole new business models, i.e. Uber, Netflix, Airbnb, and so on and so forth. So in the last 20 years of you as, a, you know, as a thought leader working with some of the biggest companies in the world, how has your experience changed as the dynamics of the market has shifted to software, to data? And really, companies like Facebook can be 13 years old and the fifth most valuable company in the world now. So incredible, incredible change in such short time. Yes, the the pace of change has been accelerating, and you know a lot of the companies in the Fortune 500 from you know a decade or two ago are no longer in in there, and companies are disappearing faster than ever before. So. 
you know, you're not guaranteed to continue to have success if you're successful today. And so, you know, as, as we were talking about in the last segment, uh, a lot of the keys are how do you build that right level of organizational agility? Uh, and, you know, for me, you kind of have this tension between flexibility and fixedness. So if you have too many things that are flexible, then it takes too long to make a change and you, you try to take these resources that are really good at something and throw them into a project where they have no, no idea what they're doing. Um, and so you have to find that, that right balance because if you try to change everything all at once or if you try to have too many variables, uh, then, you, then you can't get anything done. So, so finding that right balance and finding that ability to, to change quickly is what companies have to do. And, and for me, coming from a technology background, uh, before my MBA, you know, I have that that familiarity, having grown up digital, um, what it takes and where the value comes from as as companies look to, you know, explore making their their operations um, more digital and taking advantage of an increasing number of technologies moving forward. No, and this is really cool. Now, hey, how how many of these experiences? Like, where do you pull together all your experiences uh, to put this innovation in perspective? Is it coming from the Design Futures Council? Is it coming from some of your work before um, building products or thinking through this? I mean, what what what's driving that? I mean, where do you see these? Um, what do you see these nuggets of where innovation can happen? Well, I try to number one um, look across a broad number of sources, and and I have a pretty broad ecosystem of people that I, that I know that that are writing about various aspects of innovation, and that are you know either practitioners or academics or enthusiasts, uh, and that can highlight you know key insights that are that are new, unique, and interesting. And so, keeping my finger on the pulse of what's going on, and also looking for what's missing in the ecosystem, and look looking for what's missing in the collection of tools and frameworks and methodologies and techniques for achieving innovation or achieving organizational change or digital transformation is what I focus on, and um, you know, trying to to fill those gaps and and bring something to uh, the the market and to the the ecosystem that wasn't there before. And, and you're pretty global. Is it different in London at LBS versus at Rotman versus here in the US versus what's going on in Seattle versus Silicon Valley? Or is it fundamentally the same? Well, I think that people's mindsets are different as you travel to different regions. But I think that people all over the world are really passionate about this time that we're living in and creating uh, new innovations and bringing new things to market and being part of this you know, environment that we live in of accelerating change. And so it's it's a super vibrant time that we live in. And I think that there's more people that embrace change than resist change if you were to probably do you know, some sort of longitudinal study over time, uh, I think, than, than ever before. You know, it, it is true that, that again, that, that again, we've talked about the velocity of change and disruption and innovation, but we continue to hear statistics that are frankly scary, that 70% of change initiatives fail. and. Although, you know, we, we want to be in this fail fast culture, learn fast culture, we also want to achieve, uh, you know, success. Uh, so, you know, how do you put change, what kind of, how do you advise your clients to have a healthy change man management process where they can continue to embrace experiments and an iterative model of, of designing and bringing products and services to market, uh, but at the same time improving that 70% uh, statistic to something that's a little bit less scary. <laughs> well, yeah, it is, a, it is a pretty scary statistic. And I think that a lot of that failure comes from starting off on the wrong foot, starting by not um, pushing forward in the planning process hard enough. And so people get very far into their change initiatives uh, only to bump into a barrier that they might have been able to surface very early on or bump into resistors that they could have identified much earlier on. And so, you know, the reason for creating the change planning toolkit was to create a much more visual, much more collaborative approach to planning organizational change, because it all begins there. You know, a lot of people talk about change management. Um, some people write about change leadership, uh, but not a lot of people write about planning change or, or maintaining it or treating uh, change as the, the superset of project management. So it's not really that change management is a bolt-on to running a project. Uh, instead, people should really think of project management as a subset of change management, and people should think of their organization as strategy first, followed by business architecture, and then from the business architecture and the capabilities and competencies you want to create, then you figure out what change 
projects you need in your portfolio, and from there, then you start start planning and executing everything. But the more that you can uh, have honest conversations up front and pursue your change planning in a more visual and collaborative way, then then you'll have fewer surprises and your your success rate will go up much much higher. And you know, if you look at the the tools in the toolkit, like the change planning canvas, it's you know much more of that you know kind of lean approach where you get out your sticky notes and your pens and and you get every the right people in the right room to have the right conversations and and try to make sure you don't have surprises later on. Makes sense. No, it's great stuff. You know, now one of the topics that typically we face, especially with organizations that are much more mature in their innovation cycle and innovation approach, is really concept to commercialization. Right? Great idea comes out the door. We're trying to figure out, you know, who's going to pick it up on the operation side, take the ball, move it forward, and actually, you know, make some money off this piece. As we're saying about innovation, what <laughs> advice do you have for folks to get to that point around concept to commercialization? Well, I think the, the number one piece of advice that, that I have is make sure as you're going through the process that you don't aren't pursuing an idea fragment, uh, that you start with the idea that ideas don't come first. Uh, even insights don't come first, but inspiration has to come first. So it all starts with inspiration. And from pursuing continuous inspiration, you, you have the opportunity to have a whole pipeline of uh, feedstock for driving your unique and differentiated customer insights and from that then hopefully you come up with some good idea fragments that you can collect and connect into promising innovation concepts uh, that you can then start to develop and continue to iterate on and identify where the the flaws are and especially look for the fatal flaw so that you don't get towards that that transition point uh, towards commercialization as you leave development and have something that's going to be hobbled and, and most likely fail. And so my model for innovation starts with inspiration at the center, and it's a, an infinity loop with inspiration at the center. And so the right side is all about development, and the left side is all about commercialization. And if you don't have uh, enough passion for what you're pursuing and you don't have the right things in place, then people aren't going to be inspired to create the right types of success opportunities in the, the commercialization side. And so if you don't have that, you need to loop back through the development side and continue to refine and reflect and prepare to have a really strong launch into that commercialization side. That's excellent advice. Uh, I love the inspiration at the center. I think that's, that's, that's uh, sage advice. Um, you know, a good fortune of working at Salesforce and collaborating with some of the most brilliant trailblazers and change agents around the world, and then working and collaborating and learning from folks like Ray, uh, I feel like the art of the possible is, 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 is uh, something that you, today you're not limited by technology, you're limited by your imagination, your perseverance, your, your in level of inspiration. So what lessons have you learned uh, coaching, advising, and, and, and standing shoulder to shoulder with some of your clients that are going through their digital transformation? Um, are they effectively thinking big and bold and the art of the possible? And if not, how are you helping them get there? Well, a lot of, a lot of companies come to me and say, you know, my people aren't really thinking innovative enough. They think that improving a process is innovation, um, you know, and that's, that's improving a process, not even creating an entirely new and disruptive process that's going to replace the old one. You know, how do I, how do I break out beyond that? And, and I think a lot of what it takes, and a lot of what I wrote, wrote about in the first book, Stoking Innovation Bonfire, is having the right foundation in place. And it all starts with having a common definition for what innovation means within your organization, uh, having a, a vision, strategy, and goals around innovation that tie into your organization's vision, strategy, and goals so that there's that, that alignment. And uh, it under, you know, also goes with empowering people with tools, frameworks, techniques, and methodologies uh, that everybody is, is using, and uh, also building that culture of continuous learning and moving away from failing fast to, to learning fast and moving towards the experiment model where you're identifying what your learning goals are up front and, and what your experiment is intended to achieve. Uh, as a stepping stone towards advancing that that idea fragment into an idea or taking that idea and, and moving it forward uh, so that it hopefully has a chance to, to cross that chasm between invention and innovation. Very, very cool. So hey, you've written two, you've written two books, Stoking Your Innovation Bonfire, Charting Change. What's the next book going to be about? 
I mean, that's you're pretty. I've got to write my next book too, so I'm feeling guilty. But what's your next book about? I mean, where do you want to head? Because you know, you've got them thinking about where they go. You realize that change is the barrier. I mean, what's that next step? What's the one where you're seeing that there's enough meat here to actually put something together? Uh, no pressure. Um, <laughs> don't worry. Your publisher asked us. That. You know, I'm, just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You know, Ray recaps our interview in, in either HBR or Forbes, so no pressure. <laughs> well, you know, I like to look at it as a, a continuum or, you know, a journey and, and kind of, you know, I wrote the first book and I never thought I'd write another book again. I was and then I, um, <laughs> And then, you know, like you said, uh, one of the things that was in the first book and that I s kept noodling on and, and thought that needed even more investigation was that innovation is all about change. And so then uh, as I looked around the change landscape, you know, and looked through everything that was out there in terms of books and toolkits and frameworks and methodologies, there was a lot missing. And so that's that was the genesis for the change planning toolkit was, you know, they're, they're just, it was really hard for people in my mind, and it still is hard for people to sit at a computer in front of a blank Word document and a project charter, and, and that's the way that most people begin. Uh, and so so I created the toolkit, and then, the, then I felt that it needed a book to go along with it. Uh, and as I continue to push forward, uh, you know, I think that there's a lot of confusion in the marketplace about the difference between a digital strategy and a digital transformation, and I think that you know, a lot of companies talk about digital transformation, but they're really talking what they're um, the experience that they're trying to create is actually a digital strategy is focused on, you know, customers or just employees or one part of the organization. And so it's not truly transforming the entire organization. And so I think that there's an opportunity to create something that helps people really kind of think through, you know, what would it take to fundamentally transform how we approach this business and how it serves its customers. Using all the all the tools, you know, from sensors and robotics and all the uh, new process improvement capabilities that we have, and all the technologies that we have, you know, with AI and crowd computing and all these other things to just rethink the business. Like if we were to start this business over today, you know, how would we do it? And how do we get from that new way? Um, how do we get to that new way from our existing way? This is great. It's, it's as you mentioned, it's not just tweaking and modernizing existing processes, you're really talking about leveraging, uh, of course, inspiration in the middle, but leveraging emerging technologies like cloud computing, mobility, social technologies, internet of things, uh, artificial intelligence, VR, AR, blockchain, all these what appear to be mega trends that business leaders need to think about in terms of not technology or service innovation, but perhaps business model innovation. And that takes a whole different set of skills and tools and expertise that you have for companies to really reimagine how they grow and compete in this uh, in this economy. Yeah, it's really all about you know how do you reimagine how you follow customers through as they change over time and what they need and what they value, uh, so that you remain relevant. You don't become one of those companies that drop out of the Fortune 500 or disappear completely. Wow. We are talking to Braden Kelly, innovation, change, and digital marketing strategy at Business Strategy Innovation. More importantly, he is an innovation speaker and digital transformation leader. You can follow him at the awesome handle, <laughs> at Innovate. We're all lusting on his handle. Anyways, thanks for being on the show, and thanks for being part of the Disrupt TV alumni. We're talking here on Innovation Memorial Day weekend. So thanks for being here. Thank you both. Thank you. Wow, Ray. And people wonder why Fridays or afternoons are my favorite time of the week. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, and the thing is, I got to keep adding these books to my to do, you know, to you know, must read list. And, uh, and these authors are all extraordinary. And so this is the, our cleanup hitter spot for those of you who follow baseball. Uh, I can't think of another sports analogy that says, you know, you bring somebody in that hits a home run and kind of puts a nice bow around everything we learned the last 40 minutes. <laughs> no pressure. But we have uh, Heather Clancy, editorial director of GreenBiz Group, as our last guest. GreenBiz advances the opportunities at the intersection of business, technology, and sustainability. Since 1991, GreenBiz has chronicled and has been a catalyst for thought leadership in terms of uh, aligning environmental responsibilities with profitable business practices. Heather is an award-winning journalist specializing in coverage of transformative 
technologies and sustainable business practices. I would love to hear her thoughts after our two guests. Uh, her articles have uh, appeared in Entrepreneur, Fortune, International Herald Tribune, New York Times, and other awesome follow on Twitter, at Green Tech Lady, G-R-E-E-N-T-E-C-H-L-A-D-Y. Welcome, Heather. Welcome back, Heather, to Disrupting You. Hey, guys. How are you? Great. <laughs> I'm, living up to, I'm living up to my Twitter handle, finally, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Well, hey, congratulations on the new role as editorial director at Green Biz Thank Group. Thank you. You know, that's your passion. We it see is. it in your writing. Um, tell us, what are the innovative, the hot trends, not the creative ones, since this, no, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> what are the innovative trends that are going on in Green Biz? So uh, there are th several things that I'm following very closely, but I'll, I'll start with two of them because we only have a few minutes and there's plenty of stuff to talk about. But um, one of the things that I've already been writing about quite extensively this year and in, in prior lives, if you will, is the movement by the corporate world to push utilities to give them clean power. So um, there's a lot of innovation happening. And, 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 and strangely enough, or not so strangely enough, a lot of it began with the tech sector. Google, Microsoft, Amazon, these companies began, uh, Apple began demanding, and I'll use that word, it's, it, uh, that utilities give them clean power. And the ones that would not, they've gone around. So you, that's why you've seen those companies and others making investments in solar plants and wind, and wind farms and so forth, and actually directly investing. Um, and not just as a way of reducing their costs, because by the way, that's what they're doing. They're reducing their costs based on fossil fuels. Um, they're actually using these as a way of making money, right? So you invest in a wind project, what, can, what return can you get out of it? So those companies and, and many others, General Motors, um, Johnson & Johnson, I mean, I, there's a whole list of them um, that are part of the RE100, right? They've committed to buying renewable energy, clean power, if you will. So that's one area I follow very, very closely. The other thing I'm, I'm fascinated by is um, the velocity with which some of the folks on the energy side and also on the transportation side uh, are, there's a lot of adoption of blockchain, right? So uh, most of us think of, a, of the blockchain, which is, you know, the, the underlying mechanism for Bitcoin as a financial instrument, right? Financial services companies have clearly been investing in this for a long time, but there's a ton of innovation happening with respect to um, energy and transportation. And I'll close it off there because I'm sure you'll ask me about applications. And I'm sure you'll ask me about follow-ups, and I'll give you that chance. <laughs> All right, go right. That is my big softball. That's my big softball. Please opening. go ahead. <laughs> Ray and I, we, Ray and I, we were at a higher education summit a couple of weeks ago in Austin, and uh, University of Texas Austin demonstrated how they're using blockchain and right. chain script to create a persistent, progressive profile of the students, almost like a passport for the right. students where they can take courses from multiple institutions and as they get their accreditation or their badges, they can in real time in a trusted blockchain framework, share those accomplishments with employers. Right. And the employers can immediately put the talent into, you know, and bring them into the work, workforce. Now, right. not just wait after four years of graduation before you know, they're contributing to, to society. So that was an incredible application of blockchain chain script in higher ed that I think would revolutionize you know, the current process mm -hmm. uh, where the student doesn't really own their data and yeah. can't share it with employers while they're in school. So, so blockchain has is, is, is been particularly, um, is particularly a lot of activity in the energy sector because mm -hmm. there's an example of the, uh, the Brooklyn microgrid, that's the sort of general name that's been, been used, but in Brooklyn there's this neighborhood that has connected um, solar panels from building to building. And these panels are on a, a transactive system so that if my, my building produces solar and I don't really need it, I, my neighbor can buy it. And the blockchain is, is, is facilitating those transactions, very good at microtransactions without, that, don't that no one has to be in the middle of, right? So that's one example of, of um, the sort of distributed grid applications that um, many uh, companies are lusting after and utilities are struggling to figure out. Um, that is one area where you're gonna see a lot of activity. On the, the transportation side, Toyota just announced a major research project. And if you think about it, 
blockchain could be very instrumental in the whole self-driving car movement. Just one example. Um, I put a self-driving car, maybe, maybe like, maybe it's the next generation of Zipcar, right? So I put this thing in a neighborhood and what, what allows me to quote, check in and check out that car? Blockchain is seen as, as potentially one of the things that to do that, to move forward, to kind of take, take the, the, those transactions to the next level and no one really needs to own it. Like the cork, <laughs> there's one company, the car could own itself, right? I mean, this <laughs> asset could just move around and, and get money and stuff. You know, I mean, I, that's kind of a crazy scenario, but maybe not so crazy. Um, and then, you know, when you, when you think about the pure sustainability movement, um, a Walmart is actually using uh, blockchain to trace the source of meat yeah. and of vegetables to make sure that it's... Um, a, a verifiable source to understand the conditions around it and to, to see whether it's spoiled, yeah. right? So they're testing it as well. Absolutely. My first consulting with a client on blockchain was a dairy company, one of the largest in the world. Mm -hmm. and, and the case, the use case was exactly that, a trusted, verified source uh, of, their, of, their, of their goods and services. So it, it's, now, Ray, do you believe uh, Don Tapscott, when he told you and I and the audience that he believes blockchain is even bigger than the internet in terms of impact <laughs> on society? Um, well, you know, Don, Don makes these great statements and we figure <laughs> them out 20 years later. So I, don't, I never know, I never know. <laughs> so when he, talks, when he started talking, when he talked about digital 20 some years ago, I was like, all right, come on, Don. It's like cyber. <laughs> but, but here's the thing. I do see blockchain playing a big role, especially where we're in supply chain uh, situations, mm -hmm. complex supply chain networks, where you have to figure out time-consuming and manual work to right. figure out transactions, track assets, right. figure out errors, figure out time-consuming errors. We're going to see a, a need for that. There is this weird question, though, in blockchain all the time, is who owns it? Right. right? Like, where, where does it sit? Like, okay, who has this? And, and that's the difference between centralized and decentralized blockchains. Right. Right. Like, is it centralized with one owner that it might be the internet company or the ISP? Is it in a consortium or coalition of industry organizations? Is it my personal data that Facebook's has, right? These are all going to be interesting yeah. things where we see blockchain. In the up. energy area, there's already a, a group that's started, that's come up around this, right? So their idea is to, 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 to provide a common framework for energy, the Energy Web Foundation. I believe that's, I hope I'm not butchering their name, but um, they're, idea is to create this common framework, make it open source, and then yep. to let other people, then to let companies develop applications on top of it. So they would own that application of it potentially, but there would be a standard way of, of handling certain things like transaction security, of course. Um, so yeah, I think that will be the, I think that will make some companies uncomfortable with using it, but um, you know, like G General Electric is also another company that's very fascinated with the whole um, distributed energy applications of it. And, um, you know, I think it's kind of, I mean, it's definitely an open source movement, if you will, that, that, that will require companies to build on top of it. IBM is making, is, is creating a product around it, right. By providing service and helping people develop because who, who wants to develop, develop these applications, that skill is, is difficult. So there will be services and application, um, you know, sort of proprietary applications on top of, I think, an open source framework for it, for different yeah. applications. No, no, and, and our, one of our analysts, uh, Steve Wilson, has been looking at this, and he was at a consensus uh, at, uh, at the conference earlier this, this week, really, really looking at uh, where these, where these uh, developments are headed. So right. now let's talk about another issue that's kind of important to you, is, which is really about boards getting smart and sensible about sustainability. <laughs> What's important for boards to do this, and, and where are they missing on this? So here's here's a, I'll, 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 this will be kind of a long answer, and I want to bring in another thread that will help explain this. But um, most of the companies that are focusing on sustainability, that are successful at it, are considering it as part of an overall business strategy. They're not just having they don't just have their team off on the side trying to trying to make make a great employee uh, volunteer program for the community or let's do recycle or let's clean up ocean plastic. Sure, they're doing that because that's important. It's important to be to get your employees engaged to help them get excited about saving power to help them get excited about um, sorting the trash in their buildings and so forth. It's, that's important. But when you think about like this is the example I'll give you that is pretty pretty darn profound. Apple just made a commitment to 
making its products out of old products. They want to aspirationally in the future create all of the new products by recycling, remanufacturing, reusing components from their past products. That is a pretty, and, and that's, 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 um, Remanufacturing re re has been around for a long time. Recycling, electronics recycling, the e-waste problem, that's been talked about for many, many years. And no one's really quite put their finger on how to advance it to the next level. E-waste is still a huge issue. There's still very few, the recycling, the, the rates are very, the e-cycling and recycling rates are still pretty low. I, I, I won't even try to name a statistic, but they're, they're so regionally focused, so state-driven, so fragmented it's been very bit difficult but this is a company that has said as part of a business strategy we want to do this now i don't know how long it's going to take them to do that but it, that will require them not to just have a recycling program on the side that will require them to look at all of their manufacturers have discussions with all of the, the foxcons of the world about how they make their equipment able to handle that i mean that is a profoundly huge statement so I think when you to go back to that, unless you have the board of directors buying into something like that, you can't try, you can't possibly commit to that. And 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 can Apple do this? I don't know. But the only way they said they could say they could do it was to get the board involved. So that's why you see Walmart, Apple, General Motors, um, now Ford, <laughs> right? They've had a leadership change, but many of these companies are. <laughs> Are looking at this from the board level and the ones that are doing it right are the ones that are kind of half-assed doing it and I'll, I'll just say it right out there are they don't have the board level commitment and until they get it that their board will think of this as a as a problem on the side and not as part of the business strategy you know that's a really interesting thing because um, in Lisa Jackson's report um, for Apple uh, who's right. the head of environment at Apple I mean yep. they had a bunch in here I mean they were talking yep. about four gigawatt you know, commitments from power gen companies. I mean, that's not easy, right? It's to get renewable, four gigawatts of renewable power. I mean, that's a big issue. And and really like getting recycled. They're selling power. They're selling it. Yeah. They're, they can sell the power. I mean, that's a money. And until you think, until you can think holistically about, hey, this is an investment opportunity for us. We can use our cash in this way. Um, oh, by the way, let's offer this to our supply chain so they can, you know, because that's one of the struggles is when when one of these big companies, their supply chains are made up of very small companies. I mean, the so Fox capitalism, capitalism has a place with environmentalism. Absolutely. And I think that's what I think is so important right now. And, and that's why also you see businesses uh, uh, criticizing, and I'll, I'll get political for a second, criticizing the, the cuts of, for, uh, one great example, Energy Star. Thousands of companies have written letters to their congressmen, you know, to the people on Capitol Hill saying, do not eliminate this program. This is one of the best, most productive private-public partnerships in the history of the United States. Look at the, look at the products that are sold around it. Look at the revenues generated. Look at the jobs that are associated with energy efficiency. And you want to cut this program? I mean, so they, and that's why you've seen businesses begin to speak up about the business opportunity associated with this. This is not an environmental issue. It's not a tree yugger thing. It's a good business strategy. I would love to counter the Energy Star comment just on one point though. Mm -hmm. And it's only in the fact that these products are designed for planned obsolescence. So my refrigerator is designed to break in 10 years instead of the last for 30. And sometimes mm -hmm. I'm not sure, I'm not sure if the energy savings that I'm gonna get from the next 20 years on my refrigerator outweigh the cost of having to remanufacture and build another refrigerator. Okay. And and that Fair. part that part I I think is a really bad use of um, you know, resources, because if you can make something run for a long time um, mm -hmm. and find a way to fix it and retrofit it instead of That's forcing you to buy something totally new, agree. I feel really bad about that. So Inside. if, and the Energy Star program is meant to inspire innovation, and if that's where the next level of innovation goes, awesome, because that program, you cannot have that label unless you've somehow made your product better than what's out there already. So I, I, I agree with you on that, Ray. I, I totally Totally and where I would hit Apple living in Cupertino is that they make these things so hard to fix, right? Like I got to get a new screen. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. you, have have you have to have components, right? Yep. You have to have components. And, and I, I, it's too bad that the, I'm, I'm spacing on the name now. What was the Google phone? You could like take the components out. And, Pixel? 
Is it? Yeah. So there's some, yeah. I mean like what a great idea. Like, okay, <laughs> this broke, let me fix it. Or, Hey, I want to upgrade my phone. Totally agree with you. That that's one of the areas. And again, um, but until uh, to the point you were to the question you asked me until you make that part of the business strategy, yes. it won't happen. Um, yes. It won't happen. And um, by the way, I want to remind you the Energy Star is not just a, a consumer products program; it is a building program, right? Yep. And it has forced and that and that to that point, those that equipment has lasts a long time. <laughs> what, what, yes. what, what do we know about Apple's new headquarters? Is that going to be the the the, the Best I know they're going. You know, I know they're going for lead platinum, but um, and I actually I was just in the Energy headquarters this this um this week, um in Princeton. So for those of you who don't know, that company is a big huge it's a big energy developer. Um, they've they're they've been very associated with a lot of solar commitments and so forth. Um, and they have this great building. And in, by the way, they don't own the building. They did this you know with Boston. They did this as Boston Properties. They have solar. They have um, solar thermal. They have a CHP on the plant. They have energy storage. Um, and this building, uh, a large amount of the time, it, it gives back to the grid. And we can do that here in New Jersey. But go you ahead. Know, Apple, Apple's interesting. It's got, it's got 11,000 parking spaces, but it's the world's greenest building with uh, 6,000 trees. They inverted something in their design where everything is underground yeah. so that there's yeah. more green space above than actual you know hardscape which is actually unusual and they actually ventilated everything on its own so there's 2.8 yeah. million square feet of office space where they're basically ventilating yeah. their self-ventilation in the spaceship so they might actually get platinum lead, lead platinum certification which would be pretty interesting for the five billion dollar building and 1.8 million square feet of spaces alone there the, so the parking uh, stuff kind of bothers me a little bit because you know and and i just saw something this week about ibm requiring now all of its employees to go to offices and so commuting remains an issue right and I, you know and that's a cultural thing and it's a what's the best thing for the company do you have your people there do you have them remote i don't know and that 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 will continue to be a, a debate we'll have forever i think Apple's, Apple has a third of its workers using alternative transportation, whether it's um, shuttle buses, cyclists, or a whole bunch of other things right. that they're doing to make them get there. So I think they, cool. they've, they're doing something cool there. But I, I live literally like less than a mile from them. So I'll sneak in and tell you what they said. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we got to do a disrupt TV show on, on site. So that's what that's I'm going to check with, uh, we'll check with their PR folks. They're notoriously tight-lipped, so we'll find out. So Heather, uh, in addition to blockchain, what are some of the other areas that you're looking to research in the next, you know, for the rest of the calendar year? Uh, artificial intelligence as it relates to sustainability. So again, sort of back to the supply chain uh, information. Um, again, many of these companies, uh, Hewlett Packard, for example, uh, Hewlett Packard Enterprise, <laughs> to, to be to put a fine point on. HPE and HP Inc. They have huge supply chains, and it's so hard to get information, right? And there's so, and what? How many surveys can can a company fill out? And but if they have a way of automating and collecting information about um, the suppliers, uh, of collecting information via the Internet of Things, via blockchain transactions, um, right. and then they can build ratings based on that. I think that's important, and that's sort of. Machine learning, I mean, I guess it's like artificial intelligence plus automated data analytics, if you will. Um, I continue to follow energy efficiency as it relates to the cloud, because obviously that's where more um, software applications are going. Salesforce has been pretty darn good again without owning their facilities necessarily. They've managed to do some really innovative things about. I, one thing I haven't had, got them to talk about yet, um, and hopefully we'll get them to talk about later this year is how green that that massive new office building is like, what you do there and so I haven't really had a, a chance they haven't really talked about it yet but um, I'll be following that as well so lots of things to follow to be honest that's awesome this is awesome we've been talking green tech blockchain AI cloud power energy efficiency and sustainability with our friend Heather Clancy editorial director at green biz group and more importantly you can follow her at green tech lady for our innovation session here this week and more on innovations around green tech. Welcome and thank you again. Bye. Thank you, Heather. crushed it. Thank you so much. <laughs> now, now, everyone, now, people, now people, our audience understand why we keep asking Heather to come back.
because <laughs> uh, just incredibly articulate and wide area of research and, and insight. So really appreciate her thought leadership. Uh, next week, Ray, on our show, we're going to have Rom Hendler, founder and managing partner of Innovel. We're going to have Tom Stadlin, co-founder of Polaroid Swing. And we're going to have Henry Hartvelt, founder, travel industry analyst, and advisor uh, research group. So another uh, incredible show next week. It is. It is a travel and lifestyle episode. So make sure you <laughs> stick around for this post-Memorial Day. So Ram's going to be talking about all these cool Israeli and travel tech startups that are happening. So we're going to get the scene in Tel Aviv. And Tommy's going to talk about things around innovation, Polaroid Swing. And Henry, one of my former colleagues at Forrester, who's at Atmosphere Research, he's going to be talking about travel industry tech trends. So this is going to be a not-to-miss episode so we'll see you there <laughs> for someone who uh, you know travels a million miles a year uh, I'm sure you're gonna enjoy this uh, episode uh, and, uh, and so thank you everyone for watching and uh, we look forward to connecting with you again next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific 2 p.m. Eastern thank you very much